If you have a Bible with you, you can open to the book of Amos. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. And the text is also printed in the next, tip, next page of the bulletin for you. So we're going through a new series. Um, we're a week into it. A new series that will take us through the summer, uh, going through the book of Amos, the Old Testament. To recap um, last week's message briefly, let me just quote from a commentator, um, J.A. Motyer. I think, it's, I think he goes by Alec, Alec Motyer. Um, he says this, Amos, addressing the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, has captured their attention by voicing condemnation with which they would cheerfully agree and has gradually brought his accusations nearer home until it is impossible for his audience to resist the logic which now places them also under hostile divine scrutiny. Um, he, he shared his message with the Israelites in such a way that he was pointing the finger at all the neighbors, and the neighbors just got closer until he was pointing the finger right at them. Uh, inescapable logic is that there's something wrong with us. We talked about how there is something wrong, not just with uh, people out there, not with other people in our family or in our uh, society, but with us in here, how we're the ones who are under hostile divine scrutiny, um, and we desperately need God's patience and forgiveness and grace. And we talked about how we need to keep that fact near the front of our minds as we assess our relationships, uh, as we assess the world around us, and as we help others around us to address their own faults as well. And this week, we'll think about some of the specific reasons that God gives for placing the northern kingdom of Israel under hostile divine scrutiny. And we'll think about how those particulars might also apply to us. I think they apply, actually, um, almost directly to us. Uh, so this is a good book for us. Uh, a friend of mine, E.C. Bell, some of you know him. He's the pastor of Shehalem Valley Presbyterian in, in Newburgh. Um, says that we American evangelicals have kind of a, a serious problem as a, as a church in this nation, in this part of the world, um, with things like materialism and consumerism and individualism, right? Those are a few of our kind of main ones, right? Materialism, consumerism, and individualism. Amos uh, addressed exactly these kinds of things with ancient Israel, particularly in this text. Um, and the fact that he addressed it with them happens to be extremely helpful <laughs> to people like us. So let's pray, and then we'll see what he has to say to us. Lord, we uh, have come here because you've called us. You've called us to praise you. You've called us to sit and listen to you. And uh, many of us are restless it's hard for us to sit still enough to hear what you have to say, uh, especially when it comes to things that can strike so close to home in our hearts and in our families and in our society. And so we pray that you would help us to sit, that you would sit with us, that your spirit inside of us would transform us and make us ready and willing to receive your word and to be changed by it. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four 
I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage, um, as with most of the rest of the book, is a condemnation of the behavior of the people of God. And the, the first thing to notice is that the behaviors that are listed here in the first several verses of this passage are essentially the same as the behaviors that are listed in the previous oracles that we looked at last week, which were addressed to the surrounding heathen nations. Right? The ones who are not supposed to know God. Um, one might have expected God's special chosen people to have acted a little bit differently from the run-of-the-mill pagans. But they committed the same crimes against humanity. Selling people into slavery, ignoring justice, uh, abusing power. Uh, verses 6 and the first part of verse 7 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So remember, maybe from last week, we talked about the fact that Israel was experiencing a time of relative peace and prosperity, uh, not at war with their um, neighboring nations, um, doing pretty well financially, at least uh, the wealthy were. The wealthy, the rich, were oppressing the poor in Israel in spite of what um, God had told them to do in his law, right? His revealed law was given, and it, its intent was to um, protect the poor. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the land of Canaan, the land that the Amorites had previously owned, he gave them his law, and he told them explicitly how to treat the poor and the needy. Right? They were supposed to help the poor. They were supposed to be actively involved in serving the poor to meet their needs. Right? Um, 
And the ESV study Bible says, instead of helping the afflicted as the law commanded, the affluent Israelites were crushing them. They were crushing them. So there's this, uh, this really great story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 where the widow of a prophet uh, asks Elisha, the prophet, for help because her, um, her family is in debt and her two sons are being sold into slavery to pay off that debt. Right. Not only are they, they going to take her boys away from her and split up the family, um, but her own livelihood is jeopardized by this because those two sons were any hope she had for uh, any kind of income, right, to depend on them. That was pretty standard in that society. All she had to her name, uh, Elisha asked her, what do you have in the house? All I've got is a little jar of oil, which surely wouldn't last long. But Elisha told her, go to all your friends and neighbors, gather all the empty jars that you can, bring them into the house. And he worked a miracle where that one little jar of oil uh, filled to the brim every vessel that she had brought into the house, all the jars she had borrowed. And she sold the oil, she paid off the debt, got her sons out of um, slavery, and her family was able to live off of the rest, off of the excess of oil that had been uh, created through this miracle. And that's a beautiful picture of God's care for the widow and the orphan, for the poor and the needy. And that compassion is what God's people were supposed to imitate. Right? The law of God sets that forth as something for us to imitate. But people in ancient Israel weren't doing anything like that. Uh, they abused the law of God and they abused the poor. In fact, they turned the poor into objects. They were commodities to be bought and sold, sometimes valued so low as to only be worth a pair of sandals, apparently. If someone owed a rich man money, the rich man would take the poor man to court, and the court would find in favor of the rich man every time, and the poor man would be pressed into slavery to the rich man the leaders of the people, the elders themselves, the ones who are in charge in the court in Israel, um, they had corrupted the justice of the court. Justice was being denied to the poor and to the oppressed, and the wealthy were the ones that profited. And the corruption didn't stop there. Continuing in verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Uh, garments taken in pledge. It's like when a, a rich man loans to a poor man and asks for the poor man's cloak as, uh, as a guarantee, as a pledge, that he's going to pay back what he owes. Right? A standard talked about in the Bible. God's law says that if you, uh, if you take that man's cloak in a pledge, you give it back every night so that um, he doesn't get cold because he uses that cloak as a blanket. That's all he's got to keep warm at night. But the rich folk in Amos' day weren't giving the cloaks back. Right? Instead, they were taking them to their illegal temples. You remember the altars that they had set up in these cities in the, the northern kingdom, in, in Bethel and in Gilgal. Um, they had done so so that they wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem where God had said, you're going to worship me in Jerusalem. That's the true temple. They had set up these false temples and these false altars. So they were taking these 
unjustly kept cloaks, gotten through exploitation, to their false temples, spreading them out next to their pretend altars, getting drunk on wine that's been confiscated by illegal fines through their corrupt court system, and bedding down with them uh, with uh, temple prostitutes. That's what it means. Uh, father and a son go into the same girl. Uh, temple prostitutes. And the result is that God's holy name is profaned. That might seem like a bit of an understatement. Right? This was the, the total, complete objectification of people, commoditization of people. There was no respect of another's person or dignity or need. The poor and the weak and the oppressed <clears throat> had a legitimate claim on their compassion according to God's word itself, but the rich were utterly self-seeking in their pursuits of pleasure and wealth. They had been, uh, become such consumers that they would even devour other humans <laughs> to fill their desires. Other people became something to use, just a means to an end to be used or discarded, depending on profit or pleasure. And in the process of this, they totally ignored God's law, which told them they should have loved their neighbor as themselves. In fact, uh, they weren't just ignoring God's law, they were ignoring God's grace. Continuing in verse 9, God says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So God's saying, let me recite the story of my grace to you. Remember the Amorites who dwelt in the land of Canaan before you. Remember how I said in Genesis 15 that I was going to destroy them and drive them out from before you when their iniquity was complete, when their sins were filled up like yours are now. Remember how strong they were, mighty like cedars and oaks? I drove them out. I destroyed them. I did that for you. I delivered you from, uh, from slavery in Egypt. And I stayed with you. I guided you and led you with my personal presence for 40 years in the wilderness, even though you were complaining and grumbling against me the whole way. And I gave you the land of those transgressors, the Amorites, and now you've proved to be the transgressors. The Israelites had sinned against grace. They'd bitten the hand that fed them. They'd let themselves be blinded by comfort and prosperity. And this happens to us all the time, right? When God blesses us with ease and comfort, we forget instantaneously to be thankful and faithful and dependent on God. Somehow we operate as if we provided everything that we have for ourselves. We deserve the lifestyles we enjoy, don't we? That's ingratitude. And Immanuel Kant called that the essence of vileness. And that's just the beginning of the problem. We're ungrateful for God's grace, which comes to us in spite of being totally undeserving of his blessing. And when we are ungrateful, we become even more selfish. 
we allow ourselves to become even more self-centered. I believe we call it rugged individualism here in America. We'll do it ourselves. We'll get it for ourselves. We don't need nobody. We don't trust nobody. We don't owe nobody. What use do we have for anybody beyond what they can do for me and mine? And that's just, that's not just an American problem, that's a human problem. It's universal. That's just um, self-centeredness. It's just that we've created a particularly nice society here where that can flourish, where people can really get ahead by being individualistic, autonomous, where consumers can pursue their materialistic pleasures at the expense of everyone around them and be living the American dream, the collective goal of our society. Now, here's the big problem with that. God doesn't get along well with self-centered people. And self-centered people don't really get along well with him either. Verse 11, God says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So God gave his people prophets to call the people to obedience, call them away from their self-centeredness, to submit themselves to him and obey him. And he gave the Nazarites as examples of this obedience, right? You can read about the Nazarites a little in, um, in Numbers 6. There are some that may come to your mind. Um, Samson was a Nazarite. Samuel was probably Nazarite. Um, but basically, they were people who were consecrated to God by certain vows, right? They wouldn't cut their hair. They, um, they wouldn't drink wine or really any, any uh, fruit of the grape. They were set apart in their lifestyle as examples of devotion to God. Who was a really good Nazarite? It was John the Baptist. Right? He did a, a fine job of providing an example of what it means to repent and obey and believe in God. Anyway... God made his will clear in word and in deed, right? In word through the prophets, in deed through the Nazarites. And the people didn't want to hear it from the prophets. They just didn't want to be confronted with the Nazarites' example uh, because they just plain didn't want to submit to God. And really, I bet if you took a poll of the human race and asked everyone what their least favorite word was, it would likely be submit, or submission. We hate the fact that God is God over us. We want a nice, easy life, and we prefer to have it without Him. We want to believe that we don't need Him, that He has no legitimate claim on our lives. We don't want to think about the fact that we're accountable for the way that we treat other people in our selfishness. We just don't want to submit to God, and when He sends leaders to help us follow him we sure don't submit to them either so we try to persuade others to abandon their devotion to god that's what you made the nazarites drink wine that was a symbol of their devotion to god we persuade others to abandon their devotion to god to bring them down to our level of unholiness 
so that we don't feel so uncomfortably guilty around them. We put pressure on the prophets to tell us what we want to hear, and when they don't tell us that, we get angry at them. We ignore our pastors or our elders when they approach us, even though they're doing it, they say, out of love, to bring up some sin that we need to deal with in our lives. They don't know me. They don't know my situation. They're not out for my good. They just want to get power over me. And if they press the issue, well, it's a consumer society. I'll just leave and find the right church for me. Sure don't submit to the leaders that God places in our lives. In fact, Amos says the Israelites commanded the prophets, you shall not prophesy. Uh, Commentator David Hubbard says that the people acted as though they, not Yahweh, not God, were in charge. We're in charge here, not God, not leaders in the church, so you're going to promote that idea or you're going to get it. Uh, And Jesus said that they stoned the prophets and they killed the messengers of God and rather than submit to God, they ended up killing God's own son, hoping that somehow that would free them. That would make them autonomous from God, finally. We objectify and use and oppress others, we make them submit to our will, and then we turn around and insist that we have to submit to no one. Isn't that so? Verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. It's basically, I'm going to flatten you like a loaded semi. Flight shall perish from the swift And the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Um, Try to picture this. It's actually like the description of a nightmare. Fast runners will be paralyzed. Strong muscles will turn to rubber. Courage will turn to fear. And for good reason, the maker of heaven and earth is coming for you, and there's nowhere you can hide. Johnny Cash has a song. He sings this. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. You think you're in charge? You think you can be selfish and exploitative with immunity? Your best attributes, your greatest strengths will not save you from God. When the day of judgment comes... It'll be like those movies when a city is being attacked and chaos ensues and people are running in every direction, screaming and falling. Um, But unlike the movies, there won't be a calm, brave hero running against the tide, pushing his way through the masses to save the day, to do what has to be done, right? Everyone will panic and fall before the wrath of God on that day because God 
is truly God, and you and I are truly not, and his righteousness will crush our unrighteousness into submission. In a sense, this day of judgment already came upon ancient Israel. Their cities uh, collapsed in the earthquake that Amos mentions in, um, in chapter 1, and they were utterly overthrown by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. In fact, the northern kingdom of Israel never recovered from that conquest. Right? Their people were slaughtered, where they were carried away into captivity, where they're all mixed into the population, intermarried with, um, with the Assyrians, and lost all sense of their cultural and national identity. The day of panic came upon them, and they were finished. And there is a, a day still coming, a day of panic and judgment for the whole world when the elements melt. And people are so terrified of the wrath of God that they beg mountains to fall down, to collapse and fall down upon them and hide them from God. But it's inescapable. Right? So how do you escape the inescapable? You submit yourself to God through Jesus Christ right now. Right? And you will be spared the coming judgment. Because there's already been a day of panic. There's already been a day when the proud and the mighty fled naked. A day of panic and confusion. It was the day when the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. The day when the full righteousness of God was revealed from heaven and crushed all of our unrighteousness. The day when Jesus was crushed at the cross. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation from judgment, have had their transgressions punished already as Jesus bore them in our place and suffered God's wrath for us. Out of sacrificial love and grace, the complete opposite of selfishness, right? Out of love and grace, Jesus endured God's full justice against us. It was the greatest demonstration of God's righteousness the world has ever seen in punishing all of our sins, as well as the greatest demonstration of selflessness, the rich and powerful coming from heaven and giving his life for the poor and needy. That's the God that you're called to submit yourself to, the one who gave his son's life for your salvation, for your good. And if you can't happily submit yourself to that kind of God? If you can't give up your autonomy, your individualism, your selfishness to submit yourself to a Savior like Jesus Christ, I literally do not know what to tell you besides good luck with that autonomy on the day of panic. Please don't let it go that far. Submission to God is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's what you were made for when you submit yourself to his self-sacrificial love and you start to see the dignity that he has freely bestowed on you, even though you didn't deserve it, it'll transform the way that you look at other people. The way that God has treated you becomes a pattern for the way that you treat others. There will be no more objectification or commoditization of others using them 
to, to get personal gain, oppressing them, or even just ignoring them. All right. So what if that smelly guy asking for the handout doesn't deserve it? You didn't deserve God's mercy either, and he went well out of his way to give heaven to you. Your relationships, um, when you understand this gospel, won't be so transactional anymore. You won't assess relationships based on what you can get out of them. Instead, you'll start asking your Lord where you can serve other people for their good. And when you submit to God through Christ, then you'll submit to the leaders he's placed in your life, the prophets and the Nazarites. We all need to improve in this and practice uh, submission in the church. Because our whole society is so built on individualism that submission to others is absolutely alien to us. Um, As a minister, one of my ordination vows was that I promise subjection in my brethren to the uh, subjection to my brethren in the Lord. I'm, I'm submitting myself to fellow pastors and elders, so I need to ask more frequently my fellow pastors and elders to help me assess my life from a biblical point of view to see where I've been resisting obedience to God, to see where I've treated people like objects or used them, to see where I can improve in my service of them, my esteeming of other people. And I need to take their counsel to heart and put into practice the things that they say, especially when they say things that I don't agree with. And you, if you're a member of this church, took a vow to submit yourself to the government and discipline of this church. How about you just make it easy on everybody? Be really weird, countercultural, and invite your pastor, or in a few months, the new elders that we might have, invite them into your life to talk about where you might need to grow in Christ. That's what we're here for. And if we point out things from God's word that you don't like, how about just taking that and submitting to his word and asking for his grace, his help to change you? Submission to God is not easy for sinners. In fact, that's kind of antithetical. The fact that we're sinners means we want to be autonomous from God. We're rebellious against him. We don't submit to him. But for saints, for those who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have tasted God's grace, who have received his spirit, who have been made a new creation, submission to God is a new desire that we didn't have before. And it's a good thing. It's one that we're going to cultivate for the rest of our lives. And it's one we're going to enjoy for the rest of eternity. So let's foster that desire to submit to God Let's foster that desire among each other in this church. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, you've, um, you've brought us into a community where we can have relationships with one another that have the effect of um, redeeming our lives, of changing us, of bringing us back from darkness and sin and rebellion and setting our feet um, 
Every day, it seems, our feet are set anew on the, the path of righteousness, the path of submission to you and obedience. We pray that you would make this um, an appealing thing to us. We know that uh, such change being brought about in our lives is a community project, and so we ask that you would help us to listen to one another in this church. We pray that you would help us to speak the truth in love to one another in this church. We pray that you would help us, uh, by your Spirit, to submit ourselves to Jesus and to your Word and to everything that you have in store for our lives, because we know that you work everything in our lives together for our good, because you love us. And so we pray that you would help us to submit to your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.